this is Director Chats, the musical theatre podcast with me, Christian Bullen. On today's show, we have award-winning musical theatre lyricist and librettist, Sam Carner. Hi, Sam. How are you today? I'm fine. How are you, Christian? I'm great, thank you. Whereabouts are you today? I'm in, uh, in Nevada in the United States. So we're, uh-huh. we're in very different time zones right now. Yeah, I think there's about 15 hours between us at the moment, right? <laughs> yes, it's, it's Friday morning for you. Yeah, so it's Friday morning, 7.40 a.m. in Hong Kong, and I think it's 4.40 where you are, right? Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Which city are you in, in Nevada? Um, Just outside Las Vegas. Oh, wow. I love Las Vegas. I went there once when I was a a young boy. Um, It's it's an incredible city. (laughs) Yes, it's really, it's it's like nothing else. Uh, We have not, we're staying with family, we have not seen much of it uh this this trip (laughs) because of the quarantine yeah but yeah Uh, oh i know it's such a shame uh, Uh, so it's it's beautiful yeah yeah so today uh, i wanted to invite you on the show because i wanted to um you know get some more information about writing for musical theater for uh, any people out there that are starting to do it or they are already um in the process of writing for musicals so we can kind of shed some more light on the process and stuff like that. So I want to head a bit further back in time and um, just ask you how you got interested in the first place in musical theatre. Well, uh, for me, that, that's heading quite a bit back. Um, <laughs> my, I think the first show I ever saw was, was Annie Get Your Gun. Uh, it was a, it was a uh, summer stock production in my home state of Maine, and I was about six, and I loved it. My parents took me to see it. I loved it, and they brought home movie musicals like My Fair Lady and Gigi, and I, I so as I developed an interest um, on some level at that young age. But when I was when I was ten, I wrote this long story, uh, like a children's story, and I wrote some songs into it for some reason. It was about a, well, it was about a rabbit who campaigns for president. And uh, <laughs> I wrote some campaign songs. And then when the Children's Theater of Maine had a young playwrights contest, I was uh, 12 when they announced it. And my father suggested, why don't you take this long story and turn it into a musical? So I took the four camp. I mean, I took the the outline of the story, the four campaign songs, added another uh, seven or eight numbers, and submitted mm-hmm. it and won. So when I was thirteen, I had this twelve performance production in my home state of Maine, and wow. I really caught the bug then, um, and continued with other shows for um, for the children's theater, and then went to college and studied uh, the sort of component parts of musical theater. That is, I studied a lot of poetry, drama, uh, music theory, music, um, opera musicology, um, all sorts of subjects that tied in in one way or another and wrote more musicals, a little more grown up in nature. And then in my early 20s, I went to, the N- to NYU, New York University's graduate musical theater writing program, which is where I met my now collaborator for a lot of projects, Derek Greger. Mm. So, wow. uh, so essentially, uh, I mean, essentially, I started writing when I was 13 and have been writing ever since. So when you wrote the musical when you were 13, did you um, write the music as well? Or was it, did you have... Uh, yes. I mean, I wrote, I wrote the melodies. And oh, okay. I wrote, yeah, I wrote, I did not have the sophistication really to harmonize. So I mean, okay. I, I could hear the harmonies in my head, but I couldn't necessarily articulate them. So I, I wrote the melodies and I worked with, uh, with an arranger for the children's theater. And, mm. and, and then as I, you know, went to my teens, I got a little more sophisticated with my notation ability, ability to harmonize, uh, continued in college with that. Um, though, Ultimately, I ended up as a lyricist librettist, but I do think it's very useful to have a sound musical training, even as a lyricist, Mm. because it means that I can articulate 
well, if, there, if there's a lyric, I can articulate maybe what's in my head, which is good information for Derek to have. And, yes. Or for whatever composer I'm working with to have. And simultaneously, uh, if they write music, they can hand me a score and I can read the rhythms and I can comment on it and, and we can have a really dynamic conversation. Because, mm -hmm. of course, you know, composers typically speak the language of the lyricist. Lyricists don't always speak the language of the composer. And so <laughs> I think it, it's nice to be able to have um, that collaboration. It really goes both ways. Yeah, I think um, it's really interesting to, um, you know, if you are working with a collaborator to be able to understand their role as well. So like, as a director, I find that even being able to understand, you know, um, lighting designers, sound designers, those roles, um, it's really useful. But e even if you're specialized in um, your field, you can also understand everyone. It's, it's a great thing to have, you know. Um, so what writers inspired you to kind of on an early level inspired you to go into it even further? Well, I mean, as a, as a kid, I really I responded to Irving Berlin. Mm. Um, I mean, so melodic, right? Uh, so I responded to you know, Irving Berlin, uh, Lerner and Lowe, Frank Lesser. Uh, in my early teens, I discovered Cole Porter and Rogers and Hart, and I really fell in love with their work as well. Mm. I, as I got a little older, I discovered uh, P.G. Woodhouse, whose, whose work, both as a novelist and as a lyricist, I loved, and, and Jerome Kern as well. Um, and in my 20s was really when I discovered Sondheim. I know a lot of people sort of start there, but I, I, I kind of discovered him a little later, and, and you can't help but be inspired by Mm. Uh, what he does both thematically and also really technically. Um, there are some mm. technical uh, moves that he makes that are really distinctive and powerful. Uh, and, and talk about someone who understands how to make a line explode in conjunction with, with the, by, by conjoining music and rhythm and a lyric on a, a really... Um, emphasized and powerful point in time. Mm. Um, so those are some, but then I, I also drew and draw a great deal of inspiration from artists outside of musical theater specifically, uh, like um, uh, Richard Strauss and um, especially late Verdi operas, the mm. way they dramaturgically work and use, use, uh, yeah, use, use, marry music and drama. Um, George Bernard Shaw, Oscar Wilde, um, John Keats, John Donne. So the, the, I think and the, you know, the, the, in John, John Donne, those, I mean, those, those extended metaphors that he has are really, mm. can be really powerful inspirations for a lyricist. Right. So you're not just looking within the musical theatre field for inspiration. You're looking, you know, to literature and um, other sources of inspiration um, as well. How about, like, in general life? Do you ever kind of walk about and think and see things and you just think, oh, I want to write about that? Occasionally, occasionally. <laughs> um, I wish I did that more, but, right. but yes, I, I would say it's more common to experience something in life and then think that's a song and, and turn mm. that into a song. Uh, less common to experience something in life and think that's a show. Um, but yeah, I, yeah I, I do, I do wish I did that, that more, but I, it works, it works both ways. So sometimes there's some, you, 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 someone will say something, say a line in conversation, mm. say, that's a song. I want to write a song about that. Um, oh. Sometimes there, sometimes uh, someone will say, will 
say something, you'll, you'll think something and realize that kind of scenario is a song. But it works the other way too. Sometimes you'll have the idea for a song and then you'll go out and seek out the people who can tell you about what that experience is. Oh, so, right. For instance, an island song, we have a song called Waiting, which is about mm. waiting uh, a person waiting tables who's also a performer and waiting for their big break. Uh, and the problem that waiting tables may actually be getting in the way of their having the big break. So I had never actually waited tables before. So, but I had this idea for a song. It felt powerful, especially because I knew people who had, I mean, plenty of people, of course, in the, in our business. Um, so I just sat down with a couple of successful actor friends who also had, you know, fairly recently waited tables and, <laughs> and had a long conversation just interviewing them about what do you, actually, I was on some level more interested in what you loved about it than what you hated about it. So I wanted to get the mm. whole picture. I think it's easier to get the, it's easier to, to find out what people hate about uh, something like that, but it's harder to find out what they loved yeah. and why they kept at it. And so I got some really interesting answers and they really were very generous in, in sharing their experiences. And, and a lot of that made it into the song. Hmm. That's really so, interesting. I was, sorry, I was speaking to a producer on this show um, and he was saying that um, with his new musical that he, they're, they're writing, that it's, it's about young people. And um, he's got some, like a group of 16 year olds to talk to them about whether, you know, what, what new words that children speak at this, at their age and stuff like that. So to speak to people that are going to be represented in the song and take reality from that, that seems like quite an important thing to do. Absolutely. Um, yeah, making sure you really can get inside of an experience, you know, um, mm. and I will tell you there, there, there's a show that Derek and I are just finishing up right now. That's based on, I mean, based in this, this will give you a sense of how ideas come up. Um, we, we were doing a show out of town and it was just, we, we were out of town, but everyone else was local. And so there's not, there wasn't really much to do at night, but for the director and Derek and me to just sort of hang out and gossip about the show <laughs> and, and everything. So at one point, I think the director said, well, who in the cast do you think is going to get together? Or do you, who do you think has gotten together? And so we were, we were talking about it. And when one of the, one of the stars of the show came up, uh, I said, well, I don't know who they're going to get together, but if I were writing it, I would write them getting together with the stage manager. And this was because <laughs> of this, because of these two personalities and, and also just, it, it felt, uh, it felt like it would be, it would be a feel good. It would be a feel good story for, for a bunch of reasons. But then I thought, well, that's a show. And that yeah. was, and then, and then we, we ended up writing a show uh, that we're working on right now, finishing up called Techies, which is about the, uh, the, the, it's said in the high school theater department, and it's about the war between the actors and the technical theater students. Oh, wow. That sounds and, excellent. But, you know, it all came out of this idea of, like, what if there was a romance between an actor and a technical, you know, a front stage person yeah. and a behind the stage person? And the first song we wrote in the show is called Behind the Spotlight. It ended up being a lighting designer spot op, uh, spot operator, who is in love with one of the stars of the show and she sings this song she's very kind of unique and shy and she sings this song from the back of a house operating the spot Ooh, uh, like it and it's all about how i she shines light on this person but never but it has never actually spoken to her you know never actually gotten down on, yeah. onto the stage so that that was yeah essentially that was that was the basis for for techies just a talking about a situation and imagining how it could be amplified. Yeah, because I, I'm often sat in the auditorium and you see, you know, like some of the technicians and you always think, oh, I wonder what their story is. So to like kind of expose that alongside the actors is a really interesting dynamic. Uh, I think it's a great idea for a musical. I can't wait to it's, see a bit more of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it's it's been it's been a lot of fun to work on, and we've. I mean, again, we've collected a ton of stories from technical theater students and and just other mm. high school 
high school theater alums about what they went through and, and <laughs> um, what were the horrible things you guys did to each other. He's <laughs> like, yeah, because sometimes you hear the cliches of uh, cast members um, kind of being a bit rude to the technicians and stuff. Is there that dynamic within there as well? Like, oh, it's definitely there. Thing? Yeah, <laughs> yes, that, that's definitely yeah. a part of it. Yeah, there's a whole techie rebellion. Oh wow! Sabotage moment in the second act. Love it. Yeah. And I guess it's going to be quite immersive in the sense that you've got, you know, some of the technicians in the audience. Is that, is that going to be a lot? Absolutely. Within that? Some, of the, some of the scenes happen behind the audience, quite literally. Right. There's, <laughs> there's also a character who's on God mic all the time. Um, <laughs> who I think, I think we may never actually see until the end of the show. We may just... That'd be brilliant. That'd be voice. brilliant. Uh, but... Yes, our, our hope is to, to make it that kind of immersive experience and also to encourage, at least for some productions, for the technical theater students to actually play a, play a role, to, to, mm. to really cross over so that the actors may actually do, fulfill a certain technical role and the tech, technical, theater performer, uh, technical theater students may actually be performers in this particular show and really embody the kind of integration that we're talking about in mm. the actual makeup of the show. Sounds great. Um, so whilst we're talking about some of your projects, um, should we have a little chat about Island Song? Yes, um, you directed, you it up right? earlier. Yeah, I did. I was very lucky to be able to direct that in London. Um, I loved the show. From the moment I heard some of the songs, I just knew I really wanted to work on it. Um, yeah, so I'd just love to talk a little bit more about it, really. Um, so what I first want to ask is, where did you get the idea for it? Well, it, it, it's, it's a show that, that sort of ended up developing backwards. We started by, I mean, we, we, we started by writing a number of um, standalone songs. And uh, we had, we had been working on a, a musical called Unlocked, which is based very loosely on Alexander Pope's mock epic poem, The Rape of the Lock. And it's a kind of pop classical fusion piece. It's, I mean, it's set nominally in 18th century. Um, not really, but kind of. Um, and it still has this, it has this, it marries, yeah, classical and Baroque with contemporary pop rock. Uh, but it leans into the into the into that slightly antique style a little bit, and we wanted to do something totally different. After mm. that, so we started writing songs that were set in essentially contemporary New York, and using a contemporary vernacular, both musically and lyrically. And we wrote some of those initial songs. We wrote included things like "Sing But Don't Tell" and "Wall Lovin'," "Stay a While." <laughs> Um, so far from Pennsylvania, a, a proto version of TMI, and a proto version of the Island Song opening chorus. And some of these songs um, actually fairly quickly started to have um, both an audience and a set of performers from around the country and around the world who started singing them. So then we. At one point, a director, Marlo Hunter, uh, who we had been, um, who, who directed some of our concerts, came to us and suggested that we might want to, actually several people came to us, but, but we had a sort of an extended conversation with Marlo about maybe turning Island Song, or turning these pieces into a coherent show, not just a song cycle. We wanted it to be something that, that, actually has a kind of coherent through line and walks and talks like a musical, like a book show. Mm. Um, and, you know, as our inspiration, we took pieces like Company and Hair, which are mm. essentially topical reviews that, that actually feel like book shows. Um, though, so we started asking ourselves how these various songs that we had written either fit or didn't fit into the piece. It felt clear that by looking at the material we had written and the themes that were already engaging us, 
that it wanted to be said in New York, at least on its face, though ideally would have bearing on people's lives outside of New York, and that it would want to essentially be about the paradox of being, of all these people who are right on top of each other and feel entirely disconnected from each other at the same time, which mm -hmm. is embodied by a song like Wall Levin, where this character knows and hears the most intimate moments of his next door neighbor, but has never met her. <laughs> yeah. So, and, and a lot of the songs in the show are essentially about that dynamic between connection and disconnection and the yeah. way that that feels paradoxical in a city. So we essentially leaned into that theme and also a, a, a piece like so many windows also, um, yeah, deals with that, that, that sense that, um, that was also one of the first songs we wrote in the show that that sense of being able to see so many people and not being able to get to any of them. And then there are other numbers in the show that are about being in the crush, but not having any perspective. So you're, so you, so the, so so many windows is about seeing the potential, but not being able to reach it. And, yeah. and some of the other numbers um, say like New York, do you care for instance, are about being, down in the thick of it, but not actually being able to get gain enough perspective to um, understand the potential that's in front of you. So mm. there's that line in in a song, uh, one of the transitional numbers called the uh, "Too Much Transition," which is it's majestic, so be it. When you're in it, you can't see it, and that yeah. kind of embodies that. It really embodies the feeling of being in a city that, you know, like if you're just walking, you can be around so many people, but still feel quite lonely and not connected. Um, and when you, sp when you spoke about so many windows, that was actually the song that drew me to the show because um, I saw that um, the company that were producing it were looking for a director. Um, I put on the songs, that one came on first. I was actually in my apartment and I was looking out and it was just like, this is exactly how I feel right now. And I loved it. It's like, it's really, um, you know, quintessential of the feeling of being in a city. <laughs> so, I'm glad. Yeah. I should I should add yes. A lot of Island Song is very directly based on experiences that either Derek or I or friends of ours had, and mm. many times it's sort of they're sort of Frankenstein's monsters where we might take the personality of one friend with the experience of another and then <laughs> change the ending or merge two different stories together. Um, wall, uh, well, so many windows, I should say, is basically based on the view out of Derek's apartment uh, looking out oh, wow. uh, on the city. And because and, friends of his said, oh, I can see your, who might, be, who might have been there, said, oh, I can actually see your, your apartment from where I live. Yeah. And... And that started to, to get us thinking about it. Wall Levin was definitely, the, the first half of Wall Levin was, was based on experience of Derek's hearing his next door neighbor at 3, 3 a.m. having a, an active social life. And <laughs> um, uh, yeah, and, and, it's, and, and, and a number of the songs in one way or another are based on, on our experiences. So yeah, I've also um, seen that you've written a musical called Toast. Could you tell me a little bit more about that? Yes, we actually changed the title. It's now called Second Line. Oh, okay. Uh, but it's based on a novel called Toast by right. the, um, Louisiana novelist Rex Rose. And that piece is set in um, post-Hurricane Katrina New Orleans. And it chronicles the, um, the, re the rebuilding of this community in the face of a the sense of, of a country that doesn't, doesn't necessarily care and mm. in the face of a um, commercial industry that might rather they go away. And so it, it talks about the rebuilding process, but also gentrification and, what, and, and, and maintaining the essence of a culture in a place. Um, mm. even when 
so many forces are working working against you. It deals with issues of systemic neglect and what it means to care about care about your fellow person and care about your own life and care about your own community. Yeah, so that sounds really great, Sam. Um, so these projects you've been collaborating on with Derek, um, could you tell us a little bit more about your process? How Do you write the lyrics first or does Derek come up with the music? How does it work? Well, every song really has a different path. And uh, because our process is so integrated, or because our, our, and our interests are so integrated, there really isn't necessarily a formula for how we begin any particular song. I would say, it, for me, it's all about problem solving. It's really about what is the most important problem to solve first, what is the next most important problem to solve. But we generally begin, rather than beginning with a lyric or beginning with a, a, a tune, well, I will say, first of all, I never just write a whole lyric and give it to him, and he never writes a whole tune and gives it to me, or almost never. It's much more likely that we'll ask certain questions like, what, what work is this song trying to do in the show? Or what is the, what is the, what is the assignment that we're setting ourselves with this song? Mm. So with a song like Waiting, for instance, it was we're going to write a song about waiting tables, and it's going to be called Waiting. Then we took it one step further, and the, 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 the waiter, waitress who sings it is an actor or actress. And so we had a scenario, and we, we, knew, yeah, we, knew, we knew that. We knew the title. We knew the, the basic theme. Mm. Um, and the, then the kind of process came from that. It's not uncommon for the next thing we ask ourselves to be what's the stylistic genre of the song so and this this ends up being a pretty important question because it it informs a lot of the musical and lyrical choices so mm. sometimes i mean sometimes the answer is contemporary musical theater sounding sometimes yeah. it's pop rock sometimes it's you know with a case like wall Levin, it's 1950s uh, <laughs> In the case of, um, in the case of a song like, uh, oh, what comes to mind? In the case of our song "Man Crush," which is a duet from one of our other shows, it's 1980s arena rock. Mm. Right. So, so I suppose it gets you into the world of it once you know the genre. You can access. Right. And that's, that's, yeah. that song is actually sort of interesting in that sense. You know, we had written, we had the title Man Crush, and we knew it was going to be essentially a bromance song. Mm. And because it, it was essentially needed to be about the emotional awakening of this character who had lived, um, I mean, in this, this case, in this show, this character literally thinks he's a god. And... <laughs> um, whether he is or not is not revealed until the end, but he literally thinks he's a god, so he has all of the, um, I should say a Greek god or a Roman god, uh, is all of the megalomaniacal hubris that comes with that. So this needed to be his emotional awakening where he actually makes a connection with another human being. In this case, it's not a romantic connection, but it's a friendship, and that was sort of mm. opened the door to the other emotional awakenings he has. So... We, we knew that and we thought it'd be fun. It's, there's a sort of, it, the show has a sort of brash quality to it. We thought it'd be fun to do a song called Man Crush. And we, our first draft of it was this sort of kind of, sort of funky 1970s, slightly JRB number. And it was cute and it was fun, but it mm. wasn't a showstopper. It just didn't feel like a showstopper. So we said, you know, this is fine. Let's give it another crack. Let's try to make it the best song in the show. Mm. That's something we often say. Often when we approach a song, we say, okay, well, let's make this the best song in the show. And, <laughs> um, I mean, the best for what, right? But I mean, it really means it has, has something you can really grab a hold of. So, so, we were, so we just thought about the scenario. And I said, okay, well, it's 3 a.m. They've had a few drinks. 
and Journey comes on and they start rocking <laughs> out and they're suddenly best buds. And everyone in the bar starts singing along and, you know, and, and, and everyone's feeling this, this sense and they have this alcohol and, you know, arena rock infused connection of true, of, of a, a willingness to, to be gaudy in one's expression of emotion that only, yeah. that, only that genre really allows, uh, especially for, for um, males. So, uh, so then we, so then we said, well, maybe that's a song. Maybe it's 1980s arena rock, you know, Queen or Journey or Bon Jovi or something like that. And that's the foundation for the song. And then Derek immediately started playing some riffs that ended mm. up in the song. Right. And, and the song developed from there. And it allowed for the, for the lyric to also be, again, really broad and intense and gushing in a way that I, I think is pretty funny. Yeah, so do you, do you sit together um, and work like as a team like in the same location or do you have to do it stuff by a distance sometimes? Uh, a little bit of both. I mean, we, we will sit in the same room usually for the beginning. For the, uh, we'll sit in the same room until we get the germ of the idea for the music and the germ of the idea for the lyric, typically. Mm. Then we might go off and do our own things. Derek might send me a, a, a voice memo of a section, um, I might send him a stanza. Often the way we, it's not uncommon for us to begin with essentially the, the, the hook idea for the music and the hook idea for the lyric, um, maybe uh, the music for a section. And I might then jot down a dummy lyric or I might jot down a whole lyric or I might for, for that, you know, for one of those sections just so we know that we have a, a good foundation we can both agree on. Then we might go away. He might work on filling out some of that music. I would, might work on, on writing all of you know, every verse and every chorus. Mm. It's not uncommon for him to do music first for the verses and the choruses and even pre-choruses and for me to do lyrics first for the bridge. Uh, right. Because so, the bridge, yeah. the bridge is where the change typically happens, where you really deepen mm. that idea and question idea, which is why it is sometimes useful to go lyrics first for that. Right. Okay. So yeah, it's kind of it's not a set process for you. It's but no. you yeah you kind of just back and forth collaborate, quite integrated. That's that's really good. And chances are, if if we did a section, if we started by doing some sections lyrics first, then the next sections will be music first and vice versa. <laughs> okay. And if then we when do does something the... music first, then, then, you know, then the next section after it would be lyrics first. And where does the book come into that? So like, when do you fit the, you know, the, the book into it? Is it, do you have that first and then you slot songs in or, cause I know people have different processes. Sure. Um, I mean, I, again, every process has been different, but typically, Typically, we'll, we'll, we'll start with an outline. Mm. Yeah, typically, we'll start with an outline of the show. And then we'll write the songs, a few songs, a few moments just selected from that outline. And right. then we'll start to fill in the actual text of the book. Okay. Yeah, so structure, yes, structure to song to text. Spoken. Yesterday, I was having quite an interesting conversation with uh, another director. We were talking about, um, especially in Asia, there's been some musicals. Um, and there was one in particular he was talking about, which um, he said it kind of went on for like three hours. And the problem that he found in it was that the, the song was just kind of repeating what originally happened in the scene. It wasn't actually like further in the narrative. So um, what's your thoughts on how a song should slot into a script? Well, I mean, there are so many different ways that songs can work to, to great effect in a musical. But what I, the, the, best, the best answer I've been able to come up with for that, I should say, first of all, I don't actually believe that songs, that, that what, what, if, you ask any, if you ask a lot of people, they'll say, well, the songs happen when words alone are not enough. And mm. um, it sounds, I think that for an actor, that can be a useful way of thinking about it, because an actor needs to find urgency in everything that they do. So 
if now I'm singing, I'm singing because I can't speak because I have to sing. So great, that works. But yeah. in, in terms of actually accounting accounting for the way that songs actually function in a musical, I don't think it really particularly does. So I would say that so, what songs really do in a musical is peel back a layer of supertext and get into subtext in one way or another. Mm. What I mean by that is, I mean, that can be, that can be in a number of different ways, but... Um, uh, I mean, the most obvious example is the soliloquy number. Yeah. Um, I mean, the soliloquy in general, yes, soliloquy in carousel, but also just the any time a character has gone through something and then turns to the audience and no one else can hear and they sing what they're feeling. I mean, this is obviously peeling back a layer of decorum yeah. and a layer of um, supertext and giving us the subtext to, to what they're, they're feeling. Um, but it also happens in in lots of other places where you find out what is the one word that all of these characters have in common? What is the, what is the, what is the theme or what is the language to define the shared experience? And that gives us a new understanding of everything that we're seeing. It's a different mm. kind of subtext. Um, it's a kind of subtext that's actually like a, he a headline or a title. <laughs> yeah. um, but... Um, but it is a kind of subtext because it's, it's what has been, the theme has been hiding under the surface all the time and now we're making explicit. Yeah. So I think that, that I mean, that, that, yeah, that typically songs end up performing some kind of function of giving us a new perspective on what we're seeing or giving us a, um, yeah, giving us a new perspective on what we're seeing in some way or other. And mm. we could call that subtext. We could call that um, a shift in perspective. And I think that's the problem with, with seeing a scene and people talking about what just happened, is if it's not giving you new... I don't think the song has to move the plot forward, but it has to give us an enriched, enhanced understanding of what we're seeing. So if it's just mm. a rehash, it's not really doing anything. Whereas if it's a deepening it's doing a great deal. Yeah, that's great. Um, so aside from your work with uh, Derek, you've also written a children's musical. Um, Barnyard Follies is the name. Yeah. Uh, so we have a quick chat about that because that's a really interesting yeah. project as well. Yes. Uh, Barnyard, I mean, so I, I essentially when I was a teenager, I wrote a number of children's musicals. Barnyard mm. Follies was the one I wrote in my 20s and that was the last, the last children's musical I wrote. Uh, but now I've, I've kind of filled out the score and the book and, and made it available for licensing to children's theaters. And that's mm. been a, a really fun project. Essentially, it's a Garland Rooney, let's put on a show to save the farm story, in which <laughs> the entities putting on the show to save the farm are the barnyard animals themselves. Mm. So and, is it for yeah. children to perform or for, is it an adult it sh show for kids? Oh, okay. It's conceived as a show. So it's a big cast. It's like 20 to 20 to 30. And it's, and they're really, it, I built it to have something for everyone to do. So there's some roles that are, I mean, there are a couple roles that are sort of singing, dancing or singing, acting. Mm. I don't think there are any singing, acting, dancing roles really. <laughs> uh, but then there are a lot of roles that are just for dancers, just for singers, just for actors. Uh, and a few roles where the thing that they have to do is essentially nothing at all. Um, so the, the idea is to really be able to involve everyone at all sorts of levels of comfort on stage. Okay. Yeah, that sounds really inclusive uh, for, you know, youth theatres, young people to do. So it sounds great. So you said about licensing. Um, so with regards to your projects, are they available for licensing? Um, and where are they available for licensing? <laughs> uh, yeah, different places. Um, right now, well, I mean, essentially anyone can reach out about licensing by, uh, by using the contact page on our website. Mm. I mean, that's, that's probably the easiest, the easiest way to get in touch about licensing, Carner and Gregor.com. Great. And uh, which maybe you can 
put up in some way or other. Yeah, um, of course. Thank you. So, uh, but but uh, Island Song is available for licensing and has been performed um, you know, a number of times. Uh, I think there have been about 40 or more productions around the world in the last mm. two years since we made it available for licensing, which has been great. Um, there are other projects that we are still kind of developing with uh, a kind of commercial plans and those are not necessarily as available for licensing, but we hope that they will be, be someday. Techies will be available for licensing soon, and, mm. uh, and Barnyard Follies is available for licensing, and you can uh, pursue that by going to barnyardfollies.com. <laughs> Great, so yeah, reach out to you via your website um, and or the bar, Barnyard Follies website, and you can perhaps get a chance to license one of your shows. That'd be great. Um, so yeah, with regards to the fact at the moment we're in COVID-19 still at that, that time, which is very, you know, troublesome for our industry. Have, have you seen any sort of new things emerging within, you know, our industry, especially in the States? Well, yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of online content created mm. and they're also, it's just, just, um, working with with someone who actually set up a whole green screen studio and they're actually making music i mean making intimate musicals using a green screen and they can actually merge actors into the same scene um but it's, it's really not a it's not a movie musical it's a filmed musical using mm. a green screen and that's very cool and certainly has interesting possibilities um I think that the to the the, the the when this is most successful when the when the filmed version can catch capture the intimacy of live performance. Yeah, because that's quite difficult, isn't it? Like, I don't think. Yeah, for me, like being in the in the auditorium is part of the experience and having that connection. So, although these technological sort of projects are you know very good and dynamic and, and new i'm not sh i'm not convinced i don't know about you that we can ever <laughs> replace that real feeling of being in the theater you know we can just... well i think it's especially a problem in comedy right yeah um when when it's so dependent on the kind of communal response of an audience and anything that anything that's really dependent on a laugh to really uh, to uh to erupt and and also anything that really has a button i mean there's nothing more awkward mm. than seeing someone go ah, <laughs> and then wait yeah totally wait for nothing uh i mean I, I feel like the the old 30s 40s 50s movie musicals grappled with that uh, <laughs> with that problem not entirely successfully <laughs> yeah so um you're also in the process of mentoring new writers, um, and you have a platform for that, um, I believe. Um, so could you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure, um, this is something I'm very excited about. I have, there's a uh, performance program in New York called the Institute for American Musical Theater. And it's a two year certificate program in um, performing song and dance for musical theater and acting. Um, and I have started a new offshoot in conjunction with, with them called the Institute for American Musical Theater Creators. And mm -hmm. we are, this, this year we've gone online. This is our first year. We, we've gone online for um, a handful of classes that uh, book writers, lyricists, composers, and directors can, can take. There are and I brought on some really remarkable teachers from the industry, uh, from all different aspects of the industry, to be to be mentors and to lead some classes. Uh, and that's been a uh, it's been really exciting to work with them. Their 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 feedback is really extraordinary. And the the classes this term range from a basic uh, lyric writing class to mm music composition, 
to, I'm teaching a class called Musical Theater, Book Writing, Structure and Aesthetics. There's a, there's a course about the business of musical theater. And there's also a course uh, called Music Composition for Words People, which is essentially an opportunity for people who don't primarily consider themselves composers and may not even have any musical training, but have musical ideas that they want to express or want to be able to work more effectively with composers to gain a certain amount of knowledge of the other side. Mm -hmm. And then we have a, a program that um, allows, provides for collabor collaborative opportunities between our students where they get prompts and they go off for a couple of weeks and then come back with, uh, with songs and, and moments in, in various uh, hypothetical shows. Well, that sounds really exciting. So you're getting kind of a lot of uh, ideas and fresh uh, work coming in and uh, you get to mentor that with your team. Um, so with regards to the course, can people choose to take different parts of the course or do they have to kind of sign up for the whole thing? It's, it's all a la carte. So a student can take mm. one course or they can take five. Oh, so it's very and flexible. Very flexible. We are originally, we designed it as a full-time two year in-person program. Mm. So in the future, we may be shifting uh, to, to a model where Essentially, if you sign up, you're signing up for the, the full curriculum and to be on yeah, site yeah. and make this your entire life. This year, because of COVID um, and all of the logistical and economic constraints it puts on people, we decided mm. to make it a la carte. And that just allows for people to, first of all, to do it from anywhere because it's remote um, mm. and, and to do it in concert with their everyday lives. So... We have a number of people who are taking one course, a number of people who are taking two courses, and a number of people who are taking four or five. Yeah, so that's a great opportunity right now for people to perhaps try out. And then when you do have the full course, uh, once you know, COVID's cleared and you, you're back on site, they might want to transfer to the full two-year program. Is that possible as well? It is. And, and one, of the, one, of the, one of the things that we're doing is that we're giving anyone who decides to transfer to the full-time program, um, essentially a tuition break equivalent to the amount of money they spent this year on online. Oh. So, okay. um, so if someone took, you know, took a couple of courses, maybe spent $1,500, we would give them a $1,500 rebate on their, on the full-time course once we're able to offer it. That sounds great, especially for people that perhaps are not in uh, New York or even the States. They can have, have you got people from, you know, different places because it is online. They're not necessarily, where are people from? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's largely around the United States, but we also, we have hmm. uh, at least one student in Canada. We have uh, one student in Australia. And oh, wow. We have one student in um, Costa Rica. Oh, so it's very, you know. So it's pretty international. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's great. Uh, I mean, I think that the, the the trick the trick would be, I think it would be difficult for someone in Europe to take the to take the classes just unless they're willing to stay up till midnight or right or two a.m. Yeah. Uh, because the classes are mostly around six six thirty uh, Eastern time, which makes it makes it pretty late. For, for some parts of the world, but uh, in Australia, yeah. I think it's it's the next morning. And it works yeah, Australia well. is, that's quite a good time for them, I think. With yeah. regards to, say, Hong Kong and China, it would be 6.30 a.m., I think. So if somebody's really eager, then they could still get up for that, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah if, if, you, if, you're willing to, if you're willing to make those concessions, I'm sure it can work at any time, right? Yeah, <laughs> totally. Um, so how can uh, any young writers or directors uh, get in touch with that program to find out more they can they can email us i mean right now we really will be starting we have we haven't set up our classes for the spring yet uh those will start right. on february 1st the signups for those classes will probably be open around november or so uh but we okay. can also if they want to email us at the program we can put them on the list and let them know when classes are available to sign up for and that's just um that's that's just um, creators at iamusicaltheater.com. And I can send you, I'll give you that. Um, I can chat you that 
Uh, Great. Yeah, we'll put that on our post as well for anybody interested. Um, and hopefully they, um, they can connect with you. So um, thank you so much for talking about all of that. Oh, yeah, I've just got it through now. That's great. <laughs> I'm giving you the website too. Excellent. Thank you so much for sharing all of uh, your information about your projects and, um, you know, everything that you've been up to. Uh, I've got one final thing I want to ask you, which is kind of a big question, but I ask all of my guests. Um, what does musical theatre mean to you? That, that is a big question. <laughs> well, to me, musical theatre is an opportunity to explore characters' motivations in ways that, they, that the rules, ordinary rules of decorum might never actually allow and, get, and allow them insight and by extension allow the audience in, insight into similar moments in their lives, giving us all language to understand really human experiences and our own experiences and giving us the opportunity to have empathy for people who may on the surface be really different than ourselves. So for me, musical theater represents empathy. It, rep it represents joy. It represents optimism and the idea that we can change the world by the way we look at it. Mm. And it represents a kind of clever brashness that we can't find anywhere else. Wow, that, that's really, yeah, hit it in a nutshell, actually, for me as well. That's great. I, I uh, agree with you on all of those points. Yeah, it's really special. Musical theatre is really special. <laughs> it is, it is. That's why we love it. Yeah, yes, absolutely. <laughs> it's, it's, it's my greatest obsession, and uh, I, it's, mm. it's a great joy to talk with you about it for, for an hour. Thank you so much, Sam. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure and I hope we can catch up again very soon. Um, and good luck with everything um, moving forwards and we'll, we'll keep connected. Thank you for coming on. I would love that. Thank you so much, Christian. <laughs> Take care. Thanks. Thanks Bye, Sam. Me. Take care. This has been Director Chats with me, Christian Bullen and Sam Carner. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe. The show is available on all major podcasting apps, including Spotify as well as YouTube. For access to more musical theatre-related content, head over to christianbullen.com.